Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. We are saved by faith. And we'll get into a few points. Uh, there are six points later that we'll get into, and we won't cover all of them today. Uh, cover one or two or three, we'll see. But we're going to kind of see how do we know if we're living by faith? How do we know if we're living by faith? So Isaiah 64 and verse number 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. This is describing our lost condition. And when it's talking about our righteousnesses, these are all the good things that we do outside of Christ before we were saved. Our goodness is as our righteousness is, right? That's a big plural. That's all of the good things that we can possibly have done lumped together are as filthy rags or as those rags that the lepers would use to wrap their hands and feet, perhaps their face. Uh, leprosy in the Bible um, is described as a disease where it eats away at your extremities, at your fingers and toes and, of course, your nose and your ears. And then eventually it gets to the place where, um, you know, it can kill you. Uh, and uh, the sores are open sores and they're bloody and it's pussy and it's disgusting. It's contagious. So when it's talking about our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, we may look at one another and say, well, you're a good person. I'm a good person. I'm trying to be a good person. But in God's eyes, because he's so holy and so pure, he sees our attempts at being good outside of Christ as if we're trying to offer him a bundle of these rags that had been used to wrap up these leprous sores as somehow that is going to pay for our wrongdoings. And that's going to somehow satisfy his justice. Right? Uh and that's what it's talking about here. Um, and so what do we need? This is what our best is doing. Uh, in our sinful state, this is what our best is. What we need is we need grace. There is no way that we can somehow come and convince God that we have been good enough. I'm reading a book right now uh, called Touching My Father's Soul, which is written by Jamlin um, sitting, he's a Tibetan Sherpa, and his father was the uh, Sherpa who climbed Everest for the very first time with uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, which it's just past the 70-year mark. So Mount Everest over in Nepal 70 years ago, the man who wrote this book, his father climbed this mountain, the tallest mountain in the world, first time it had ever been, ever been done. And it was his father that the famous black and white photograph where he's holding his ice pick above his head, standing on what is called the roof of the world, right? The very tallest place on Mount Everest. It's interesting reading this book because it's written from a Buddhist perspective, which is works, 
salvation. You have to do all of these rituals. And they're teaching with a proper motivation and with a proper heart. But it describes very vividly that even in climbing Mount Everest, that is considered a degree of religious activity. If you are doing it with a good, in their mind, a good heart, you're, he describes how it takes however many minutes when you're close to the top where you're taking one step and you have to take six big breaths. I lost count and I'm getting lightheaded. It's that difficult when you're close to the top. And you're on supplemental oxygen. You have these oxygen tanks. It's that much effort to get to the top. Many people, when they start the last day of climbing where they go to the summit and then come back down, it takes about 16 hours of climbing for you to wear these big puffy down suits. You've got supplemental oxygen. You've got all this equipment on. Obviously, the air is extremely thin. They call it the death zone because it is it is essentially, if you are above 26,000 feet, that's called the death zone, meaning you are actively dying as you're up in this altitude. Um, you, you do not want to eat. Um, you're thirsty, but you hate drinking. They drink uh, like tea. They make tea and they have put lemon juice in water and they try to flavor it a little bit. But they hate to eat. Like it, there's just something about the altitude. It's probably like being in an airplane too long. Those of you, it's not the same thing. But And they're in the death zone. And he describes this extremely difficult and extremely taxing process of climbing Mount Everest and how a famous saying amongst those who climb these enormous peaks, they say reaching the summit, reaching the top, that's optional, but coming back, that is not an option. You have to come back. So the wise climbers will say the weather is too bad, it's too cold, it's too windy. I'm not going to be able to reach the top and come back in enough time. So they turn around before they ever reach the top. And many times there are many, many, many attempts to reach the summit. Why am I describing this? Well, because I love mountains, for one. But for two, because in this book, while for some people it may be a recreational activity for those who have tons of money to throw around, and for some people it's their job, for him, it was a spiritual exercise where he put himself through this enormous amount of pain and effort in order to gain. And he actually uses these words in the book in order to be born again. This life changing in his mind, having this experience was going to change his life and in the terminology of Tibetan Buddhism, it's in effect being born again. But then he goes on to describe how 
certain teachers in Buddhism, the lamas, which they're called, would say, even if you have this experience of being born again, by performing this extraordinary feat of climbing Everest or maybe some other kind of long, long pilgrimage, that the merit is not fixed. It's still never for sure. And it says that very plainly. He describes how his mother, in Buddhism, they do prostrations. They put their hands over like this, and they go like that, and then they actually lie on the ground, completely flat on the ground, and put their hands on the ground, and then stand back up. She, she did a series, not all at once, but she did a series of 100,000 prostrations. And still, in their teaching, still not sure if it's enough for them to be born again or for them to achieve nirvana or for them to have enough merit to go forward in their religion. Aren't you thankful that Christ is the one who died on the cross, that we are not required to go to Nepal and climb Mount Everest in the hopes of maybe somehow achieving some degree of purity? The scripture teaches us that no matter to what extent we go, our righteousness is in God's sight. Is as filthy rags, as leprous rags. No matter how much money we may have given, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we have tried to treat others with kindness, no matter how much we've tried to live a pure life, we are sinners. And we must be saved by grace. And that grace comes to us through faith. And that's what we see here. We are saved by grace and not by works. We are not saved by merit. We are not saved on our own goodness. And we look at Hebrews 10 and verse number 38. Hebrews 10 and verse number 38. We'll look at a few more scriptures here and then we'll get ready for the next session. We are saved by faith. What's another word for faith? What'd you say? Trust. What's another word for, so there's faith, there's trust. Is there one more we could use? Belief. That's what oftentimes in, in scripture, when it talks about saving faith, it tells them to believe on Jesus Christ. Right? So if you're confused by what faith is, it means trust and it means believe. Okay? When the Bible talks about believe or live by faith, it's talking about living by trust. And we are to live the Christian life by faith. Hebrews 10 and verse number 38 says, Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just shall live by faith. We are saved by faith, but we are to live the Christian life by faith. And then if we go to uh, Hebrews 11 and verse number 6, it goes on to explain a little bit more about faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them 
that diligently seek him. Now, this is talking about after salvation, we must live by faith, right? We're not trying to live our life by faith in order to somehow get our salvation, right? It's not like we're working for our salvation by trying to be a good person. Some people interpret verses such as this in that way. But this is talking about after salvation, after we've been saved by faith, then we are to live our life by faith. And without faith, we cannot please God. Now, we're going to look at a Bible story in Matthew chapter 14. This is one of my favorites. I'm sure all of us have some favorite Bible stories that really help us to understand specific truths. This one is the story of Peter walking on the water. I love this story. It's applicable to every Christian. It's applicable to each and every person. Notice we begin in verse number 15 because these stories are back to back. This is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And right on the back of that is when Peter walked on the water. So notice they had a very long day of serving Jesus. They just saw Jesus do this amazing thing by feeding 5,000 people. Right. They got to let's just say they got to know Jesus on a whole new level by participating in this feeding of the 5000. It says in verse 15, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals or food. Verse 16. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. Does it ever seem like, by the way, we're talking about faith. Does it ever seem like sometimes God gives you a giant problem and says, you do it? Yeah, it seems like that all the time. Whether it's a relationship problem, a job problem, a money problem, a problem from our past that we seem to have a difficulty getting over. Listen, this is, this is good stuff. This is faith. Books of the Bible, like Hebrews, describe faith in theological terms, and they kind of lay out all the mechanics of it. But this is this is this is with breathing faith right here. This is where we see how Jesus challenges people in their faith. He comes up to his followers, all twelve of them, and says, "Yeah, these guys are hungry." And another passage says they haven't eaten for three days. Give them some food. In John chapter 6, it, it says he specifically tells this to Philip. And he said, he, he tells this to Philip, this he said to prove him what he would do. Does Jesus test our faith? How does he do that? How does he test our faith? We've been saved by faith. But listen, that's the beginning of the journey of faith. We don't have to get saved ever again. But we've been given this it, the trust that we have in Christ for our salvation is now a gift that he wants us to begin to learn how to use. And one of the primary ways that God tests our faith is by allowing a problem to come into our life that we do not have money for. 
Amen. We do not have a plan for. Let's look at it. This is where, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Let's go, hold, hold your, hold your uh, place right there in Matthew 14. John 6 is the same story, but it gives us a little bit different, some different details. John chapter 6, verse 5, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, John 6, verse 5, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Verse 6. John 6, 6. This is Christianity, my friends, right here. And this he said to prove him. What does that mean? What does it mean to prove him? Test. He's testing. What is he testing? Is he testing his education? Is he testing his ability to budget food, budget money? Come on. Is he trying to compare him to the other disciples and say, Philip, you're a loser? Come on. Sometimes we think that when God is testing our faith, we feel like, oh man, I'm, 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 I'm standing out. I'm different than everybody else. Why, why is God doing this to me? Look, it's so easy to make ourselves into this victim. Why is it happening to me? This he said to prove him. For he himself knew what he would do. He knew what who would do. Himself. When God is testing our faith, he knows exactly what he wants to do to fix that problem. The problem is, is that when the problem is placed into our hands and he says, what are you going to do about it? The problem is, is that we hold on to the problem. We try to figure it out. We take the problem and we put it into Google. Jesus can do things that Google could never do. Oh, but pastor, now we have AI, artificial intelligence. I'm pretty sure AI can do things that, no, no, no. Hey, Jesus is bigger than AI. Jesus is not artificial. He is intelligence. He created intelligence. I like that. I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker. Amen. Faith is not just what we do at church. Faith is not just reading the the Bible. (laughs) Faith is not just reading the Bible. Faith is every single problem that comes into our life. Children, problems with our kids. We all, if you have kids, you have problems with your kids. If your kids are old, young, doesn't matter. Infants, it's a test of our faith. He himself knew what he would do. Of course, Philip, in John 6, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. He's got a piece of paper. And he said, man, if we had as much money as I can come up with, it's almost almost a year's worth of wages, 200 penny worth. I mean, 200 days. If one penny was one day's wage back then, 200 is two-thirds about of a year's worth. I mean, that's a lot. Nine months, eight months of wages? I don't know if we were to take the the average of income in this room, but eight months worth of wages in this room and that problem still couldn't be fixed. You ever been there? 
Did Jesus need eight months of wages? He was the owner of everything. Okay, it, it was a test of his faith. It doesn't mean we shouldn't budget our money. That's not what I'm trying to say. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be smart. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have a plan for our life. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have education. But ultimately, for the Christian, when it comes down to it, it is a test of our faith. It's a test of our faith. Back in uh, Matthew 14, and verse number 16, Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give you them to eat. They say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. Notice what faith does. Listen, faith never has enough to fix the problem. We never have enough to fix the problem. He does. But it's interesting that he always gives us something. Faith always has something in its hand. Moses had a staff. David had a sling. Right? Here in this story, they had five loaves and two fishes, and actually they stole it from a kid. Give me your lunch. Right? Now they got it, hopefully, peacefully. Jesus needs your lunch. That's the way we teach it, and that's the way we believe it. He did not let, some of us are waiting for God to just materialize and bring something out of nothing. And he can do that. He's the creator. He can materialize the solution to whatever your problem is. He can do that. But for the Christian, most often he will ask this question. What do you have? What do you have? What do you have in your hand? What do you have in your life? And then they give it to Jesus. Isn't it interesting what he does here? Verse 19, he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake. Uh-oh. Pastor, my situation, I've had this conversation so many times. Pastor, I had faith, and I, and I followed the Lord, and then it's just not what I thought it was going to be. Welcome to living by faith. Even when, they, even when they gave Jesus what they had, what did he do with the bread? What did he do with the bread? He broke it. I've got five loaves. Give them to Jesus, and he takes what you give him, and what does he do? Does he, does he keep it, and does he preserve it in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that would, 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 would stay in a museum? I'm going to give it to Jesus, and he's going to keep it perfectly. I can trust him with what I give him, because if I give him my life, if I give him my time, if I give him my offering, if I give him my talent, if I give him my whatever, if I give him this problem, he is going to, he is going to fix the problem the way I think he will. No, he won't. Never. Listen, this is what makes him God. He is not controllable. He is not predictable. He is faithful, but he is not predictable. He is faithful, but he is not predictable. 
There, there are not two stories in this Bible that are exactly the same. The closest, perhaps, would be when Moses is crossing the Red Sea, and then a generation later, Joshua is trying to cross the Jordan River. Did he do it exactly the same? No, Moses, he told Moses, hold out your staff over, and then boom, the water overnight went over like this. And then with, with, with Joshua, he said, have the priest go. You cannot say, well, this is how he solved the problem last time, so this is how he's going to solve the problem this time. It will always be according to his word. But a life of trust is trusting him with what's going on in your life right now and not demanding that he do it the same way he did last time. That's faith. That's faith. And when we give him the problem, oh, I gave him my problem and now it's getting worse. That's me. That means that he's taking and he's breaking the bread. He's not done yet. Don't freak out. Calm down. I hate it when you say calm down. Okay, how about this? Trust God. He's not done yet. You're breaking the bread. I mean, those are even smaller pieces. How is it going to feed so many people? The pieces, I mean, the, 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 the rolls were small. Barley loaves. But now they're even smaller. That's not going to work. Isn't it funny how oftentimes before God does something amazing, he makes the problem even worse? Here's Gideon. Going against the Midianites, the Bible says that when you looked across the valley, it looked as if they were sand on the seashore. Just the problems were just, they couldn't even count them. He shows up with several thousand. God says, that's too many. Excuse me? Too many soldiers? He says, I don't want you to think that somehow the victory that's going to take place, that somehow you're responsible for that victory. So he gives him a little test. How many did he end up with? How many soldiers? 300. 300 against thousands and thousands. Pastor, I keep praying, and it seems like the solution just keeps getting further and further away. Keep trusting. God is just wanting to show you how big he is. Not how big you are, how big he is. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Bible says in verse 20, they they did all eat. They did all eat. Oh yeah, okay, they all had a nibble. Nope. Some of it says I, I it, the details in scripture are important. They all did eat and were filled. They all did eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. Just in case there was any doubt. Whoa. Just in case there was any doubt. Look at all the leftovers. Amen? Say, Pastor, I have this huge problem. Give it to him. Give him time to fix it. Trust him. Be patient 
while he gives you the solution. I'm going to give him the bread, and if he doesn't do it quick enough, I'm going to rip it back out of his hands. Oh, come on. That's a huge mistake. Be patient. I don't know if I can do this exactly right. But he can. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this opportunity to look at your your awesomeness in Scripture. You're incredible. Help us to be like the disciples where we give our problems to you and trust you to bring about the solution in your perfect timing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you would help us with the tables, we'll get ready for the next service.